Okay, welcome to Movie Left, a movie review podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Montarulo, uh, joined by my co-host, Comrade Dracula. Comrade, what's going on? Did you ever notice that Paul Dano has the same haircut in every movie? Uh, no, I have not noticed that because <laughs> he was not the movie we're reviewing, so it, it never occurred to me. But I, I was talking to somebody last night, and I mentioned uh, uh, the movie Okja by the, mm-hmm. the same director as uh, Parasite. Um, and everyone said, Parasite's such an anti-capitalist movie. And I, you know, I, I, I saw a little bit of that, but not that much. But like Okja is a very uh, overtly anti-capitalist film and also features the Animal Liberation Front very prominently. Uh, and this ALF cell uh, is led by Paul Dano. And when I mentioned this, the uh, person I was talking to was like, is that the guy that has the same haircut in every movie? And I was like, what? <laughs> and then I went and looked. I started just like, you know, searching Paul Dano, Okja, Paul Dano, uh, There Will Be Blood, Paul Dano, 12 Years a Slave, Paul, you know, like, and literally every fucking movie, it's the same guy. It's like it, it he's, it's like he had a bowl cut that he's grown out for two months is, is the haircut he has in every fucking movie. And I'm like, holy shit. He has the what quarantine he... haircut, despite the fact right. that he has not in quarantine. How does Paul Danner, Dano have in his writer that, like, he gets to have this, like, hey, you know, uh, for this film, Paul, we want to do something a little different with your... Nope. No. No, we're not. Yeah, I'll do a beard, but we're not doing the hair. We're not changing And it's, anything. like, actively bad, too. <laughs> like, you think if he, like, swept it up, like, be- like, be- like it would look a lot better, but just, like, I don't know. I don't I don't get it. You know, like, like, it, like in... um. Uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, you know the, the scene where he's like, you know, we want to do something different with your hair, something more <laughs> hippie-ish. And he's like, hippie-ish, like what? Yeah. And and that actually, you know, kind of worked out for him. But like, yeah, like Paul Dano's just like, no, no, I'm going with fucking '90s slacker. Every fucking movie is what this haircut's <laughs> gonna be like. So, uh, so, so none of that has anything bizarre. to do with the movie we're reviewing today. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Here we are. Yeah, so uh, today we're, of course, reviewing the uh, 2011 uh, neo-noir classic Drive, Nicholas uh, Winding Riffin? Reffin? Reffin? Sure. Close enough, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That guy. uh, Directed film. uh, Starring Ryan Gosling, of course. Uh, You know, this movie is just... It's so tonally... Uh, it, it's so tonally like interesting and, and di- it's such a different movie than like a movie we typically review on this show. Um, so it's, it's actually kind of a nice change of pace, but you know, I, not, not, and again, not really, uh, a ton of political elements to it. I think we've, we've strayed somewhat from our original mission statement of re- reviewing only, you know, political documentaries or politically themed movies, but uh, did we have that statement? I don't remember. Uh, yeah, we we that was our loose justification for originally starting these these things. But we've reviewed, uh, you know, f- like fucking Demolition Man and you know a, a million other movies that wouldn't even fall within those parameters. So uh, I, I think this is fair game. Uh, you know, th- this it, it's just I, I love the sparseness of this movie. Like just the 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 dialogue. You know the the soundtrack the kind of 80s synth soundtrack there was dialogue i don't remember any dialogue. <laughs> yeah the, that's what i mean like the sparseness it's fucking so it's so sparse and it's so quiet uh you know i mentioned to you before we went on air that like i literally had my volume on my tv up twice the normal volume that i usually will have the tv at and i still couldn't fucking hear anything that ryan gosling was saying or anyone else honestly but you know specifically him so i had to actually turn the captions on but um one of the things that you know came up in the research for this is that uh, this movie actually originally did have a lot more dialogue, and in the uh, pre-production stage, Gosling and the director uh, kind of went through the script and just removed a bunch of the dialogue because they thought, uh, and Gosling specifically thought it would fit uh, the personality of the character that he was building a lot more if he was a, a, a man of you know very few right. words because he doesn't like to act with anything except for his blank stare. That's his thing, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's like Matt Damon in The Martian. It's like he's got to rip out every single piece of the capsule to make it as light as possible to do <laughs> the much. thing it needs to do. Like, oh, we mm-hmm. don't even need a, a fucking roof. We'll just put a tarp over it. Like, that's that's Ryan Gosling's version of a fucking script. <laughs> yeah. Right? And this was originally 
this was this was a novel. This was a book, right? And it had a ton of detail about this guy's backstory, his family. You know, he lived with his ex-wife and all this stuff. And it was, you know, it hadn't been the the, the original script hadn't been bought. It was just sitting around. But it was originally going to be like a sixty million dollar, you know, uh, uh, action vehicle for uh, Hugh Jackman. Right, oh, wow. and it was it was going to be like a like a um, what's Fast and Furious type ripoff, you know, and it's just yeah, like yeah. another carbon copy of a movie about cars and guys and their fucking dicks, and it was just it was like, you know, like I don't even think Hugh Jackman. I think that was the that. elevator pitch, actually. <laughs> right, right. Cars, guys, and fucking fucking cars and dicks, right? Um, and you look at, you look at like you know the you know what, what what did Hugh Jackman really want to do all these years was Logan. He wanted yeah. to do the stripped down, intimate, cerebral version of, of an action indie, movie. Indie right. film version of an action movie. So, yeah. so when this finally came up to, you know, Gosling, and he's just like, "No, we're going to cut all that. We're going to we're going to get rid of that." Uh, if you know about the like the 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 drama with the ending of Seven, originally that was supposed to be like a big car chase, uh, shoot 'em up ending, um, and Brad Pitt was going to leave the movie if they were going to do that. He was like, "No, I'm doing the head in the box ending." Wow. Or I'm not doing it right. So, so you see, you know, once in a while, it's you, pretty you have ballsy a, too, because he was not like. I mean, he was a big actor, but he was not Brad Pitt at that point. He was still a fairly young actor, so that's a pretty ballsy move to be. You know, like, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, just he also hold out for your artistic, you know. <laughs> sure. At integrity. the same time, he also threatened to murder Harvey Weinstein if he ever touched his wife again. Uh, Which so is yeah. there's that. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, I mean, you see some of these leading men that take a a, a huge role in crafting. The story itself, you know, um, mm-hmm. we, we, we've been wanting to review uh, Trumbo for a long time, but a big crux of that film is how, um, ah, shit, Spartacus Rance. guy. Uh, Who? Kirk Douglas, there we go. Oh, 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 oh <laughs> the actor. Oh, I thought you meant like who plays him in the movie. I was like, uh, how Kirk Douglas uh, took a huge role in uh, getting Dalton Trumbo's job back and breaking the blacklist. Uh, by putting his own career on the line, right? So, mm-hmm. um, no, no, no big political drama to this movie, but still, uh, you know, uh, Gosling was very much on board with uh, stripping everything out of this movie that didn't need to be there. All the things that would have made it just another dumb car chase movie, which a lot of people got mad at because the the trailer. You watch the trailer for this movie, and like literally every piece of action. That it is in the movie, which there's <laughs> not the much tra- of, is in the trailer, and yeah. then you're like, okay, well, you expect to see a lot more of that, and then literally, like, there's, there's nothing but like long pauses, whether they're like loving pauses or awkward pauses or like tense pauses. That's all the rest of the movie, <laughs> right? Yeah. But the, the but those builds is what makes those little brief flashes of ultra violence and action feel so real and have so much weight. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, too, about the action scenes, there aren't that many, but they're incredibly shot. Uh, and it's actually even more impressive when when you read that the director uh, does not have a driver's license and failed his driving test eight times and is not a particularly big fan of cars. So it, yeah. it it's kind of amazing that he was able to just, you know, so perfectly capture these driving scenes. Uh, and, you know, one of the, like in the first, the the opening scene which is an incredible scene uh you never leave the car which was just a great choice right. that he made uh to really ratchet up the tension cuz you know they're they're just like you know driving around trying to avoid the LAPD trying to avoid the uh helicopters which seems like a uniquely LA thing like i don't know if any other police de- i'm sure other police departments have choppers but like that's whenever you say like oh police helicopter i just think of you know LAPD, OJ. You know, they're just waiting for OJ to fucking cut off some more heads. No, but that, yeah, I mean, a city that big, like, they always have a bird in the sky. Like, they just always yeah. have, like, and they probably have multiple up there, right? And they also, um, there's only one single shot that you see the two burglars, well, actually murderers, because if you watch it with the subtitles, you, you see that they shoot somebody, or you hear that they shoot somebody and see it in the subtitles, right? Mm-hmm. You assume that they killed somebody if there was only one shot. Uh, there's only one single uh, framing where you see the driver and these two burglars in the car. You like you see their reactions, their worry about getting caught. You see him concentrating, but like from the front seat to the back seat, they're to- totally different worlds, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and that that establishes that like these are 
two very different kinds of criminals. Like he does, he, you know, he says on the phone, like, I don't carry a gun. This guy's not a gun guy. Uh, we see that he, he knows how to use a gun. He definitely sure. knows how uh, later on when he has to, but he doesn't, doesn't and want to. And can hold his own physically. He, he can, you know, fuck a dude up if he needs to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you notice also when he's driving, he doesn't hook his thumbs under the steering wheel like normal people would when they drive. He has his thumbs over the top of the steering wheel the way an actual stunt driver would drive in order to prevent their thumbs from being broken in a crash. Oh, wow. And, that's, yeah. that's a nice little detail. Yeah. So details like that that a lesser film wouldn't even think of. Well, and, and I think a lot of that's a credit to Gosling, too, because he's such a method actor. He did go through like a stunt driving course uh, to do this film, and he apparently did a, a, a decent amount of... I'm sure he didn't do like the car flip, but he did a decent amount of uh, his own stunts driving stunts in the movie so i'm sure that that was something he probably picked up from uh his stunt driving class so that you know sure. little shit like that is like what makes the difference between an okay movie and a classic like drive like that's the shit that's the kind of commitment you need out of an actor to really you know take a movie over the top with just tiny little details and, and we mentioned this film originally was going to be a, a 60 million dollar summer blockbuster the actual budget for this film was 16 16 million dollars right but you you know for what you don't do with a huge you know michael bay explosiony bullshit movie you make up with all the details that turn it into a cult classic like this movie is like how how many fast and furious movies are there now 12 yeah like i think there's actually nine but then they're going to space with the next one i I just read like not not, not even joking (laughs) not even joking they're and gonna be launching you... lunar rovers off of fucking. Oh my god! <laughs> It'll be Ed Astra, but with like a fucking like kick-ass soundtrack. Yeah. And fucking Smash Mouth, you know, walking on the sun. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it's again, it's it's the little details, it's the cerebral elements that make you remember a film ten years later, twenty years later, thirty years later. Uh, you know, we we just reviewed a, we did like a retro review for Terminator Two a couple of weeks ago. And that had a huge budget, but it still had like that attention to detail that this film has, and it has the emotional beats where you're fucking you're hooked into every single scene. You know, there, there's so many moments in this movie where somebody will, uh, you know, ask the driver a question, like a direct question, and his response is just silence. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's it, it's because his character thinks the question is beneath him. You know, when he's when he's talking to uh, a standard after he gets beat up. He's like, what, you know, he asks him, like, well, what's the job? What's going on? He's like, what are you going to do? Go, go beat him up? His response is nothing. Yeah. He's like, I asked you a question, and you're answering, you're answering with another question, and I'm about to kick your ass more for not answering me. Like, that's, that's his fucking tough guy thing. Um, one of the things, you know, you notice that, that amazing uh, white satin scorpion jacket that he has on for a lot of the scenes in the movie that a lot of people have noted that, that that's sort of like his superhero costume, right? Yeah. You know, it's the, like his the main or shield or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of, you know, what he does, you know, being a stunt driver, he's sort of invincible in that role. Uh, you know, and, and to, to reference uh, Tarantino's film death, death proof, um, you know, the, the, the killer in that movie uses his stunt car to kill people where, you know, whether they're in the, the passenger seat or on the outside of the car and he's hitting them, he can't be killed, you know, while he's in that car. He's death proof, yeah. right? And sort of in the same vein, Ryan Gosling, when he's the stunt driver and, or when he has a superhero outfit on, that's when he's, he's in his zone or when he's the superhero and can't be touched. Like, he, he can do anything. You know, uh, Brian Cranston, who's amazing in this film, uh, you know, says to uh, Albert Brooks's character, uh, Bernie, with no eyebrows, um, you know, you put that kid in that, that car, there's nothing he can't do, right? And you notice there's a couple of scenes where, you know, he doesn't have that jacket on, and he's way more vulnerable in that moment or that situation. You notice when he's in the hotel room um, with, uh, oh, what's her name? Um, Christine Hendricks' character, Blanche. Uh, Blanche, Blanche. Yeah. There you go, Golden Girls. Uh <laughs> And and you notice his 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 white jacket is on a chair by the door, and he just has like his his jean jacket on that he had under, and that's the moment where like he almost gets fucking murdered two times, 
right, by the guys that, that attack him in the hotel room. And it's like he didn't, you know, he still, like, barely gets out of that shit alive, right? He, he like, fucking, you know, like, everything, you know, time slows down. He has to figure out how to fucking, like, he yeah. can, you know, kill two guys with guns when he has no gun uh, with a fucking shower curtain. <laughs> Brutal, brutal fucking like violence in this movie too. Like in the, the yeah. very little violence there is, it's just you could tell there's just a very a fine detail paid to just really gruesome practical effects work. Like you know, just like when you just re- or, or the guy in the fucking elevator whose head he just stomps into like a. It's just it's really it's really gruesome, but it it, it adds a, a weird you, element of realism yeah. to the movie. You know, do you notice how much the tan suit guy sent to kill him looked like? Joseph uh, Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, I, I literally, Looper, yeah, playing Bruce. He Willis really with did the prosthetic nose. I was like, this is, and I've seen that guy in other movies too. And I, he looks like that in other. <laughs> it's just a, wee, <laughs> just like, a very just, a much taller version. There, like a much, yeah, you know, they should just cast version. that guy to play George, Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing Bruce Willis in Looper. <laughs> 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 uh, that would have yeah. been a, that would have been a good cameo for him. Like everyone else's. It, it, that was the <clears> other thing about this movie is like, there's so many. Uh, like incredibly famous actors that they get for fairly minor parts in this movie. You know, you have uh, Perlman obviously plays Nino, Ron Perlman, uh, mm-hmm. which who's a significant character to the plot, but is really only in the movie for like five minutes. Uh, Albert Brooks, like you said, plays, you know, the main villain. We have uh, Oscar Isaac playing fucking standard for, you know, again, like five, six minutes of screen time. Uh, Brian Cranston, you know, one of one of our one of the 2010s or you know, one of the, the 2000s, you know, great actors playing this fairly minor role. Uh, but like you said, just really, you know, maximizing his minutes. It, it's kind of incredible the the level of talent that just pops up randomly in this movie for really small roles. And with that budget, you know, too, like, fuck, aside from dollars. aside from Albert Brooks, all those actors, their profile was raised significantly in the last 10 years or so. Like, they were all well-known in 2010, but, like, Ron Perlman's had a ton of huge roles in the last 10 years. You know, Mm -hmm. Brian Cranston, obviously, uh, you know, in 2011, Breaking Bad was huge, but it didn't get where it is now until really, like, the final season. And he hadn't been a movie star yet at that point. He hadn't really done a ton of movies. Right, right. but just to jump back to that real quick, uh, to the to the hotel scene, <clears throat> the ultra violence yeah. scene, um, you know where he he stabs the guy in the fucking throat with the the shower curtain rod, grabs the shotgun, blasts the other guy, and then it's just silent. There's no like people yelling or screaming or car alarms going off. It's just silent. Yeah, and you see his face covered in blood, and he realizes like, you know, okay, the, these people are out to kill me. No matter what, right? And this was a setup. And then he slowly steps back, and his face covered in blood goes into shadow, and it's almost completely black. And he keeps just like moving backwards, and his face just disappears. And it's such a great pivotal moment because it's it, like, how do you convey, you know, in a script or on screen, that this person is, you know, he's not the hero he wants to be. You know, mm-hmm. he, he clearly wants to be the hero. Um, one of my favorite little little tiny moments, because then you know when you strip out all the dialogue of a movie and you leave only the the, the bare bones, those bare bones are all going to be there for a very deliberate reason. There's going to be no wasted banter, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of it's so quiet that unless you watch it with subtitles, you'll miss it. Um, there's a scene when he's talking to the kid Benicio. They're watching a movie and they're just like very quietly talking to each other. You can't even hear what they're watching. And uh, they're watching. We don't even see what they're watching, but he, they're, uh, he, he says to the kid, "You think? What do you, you think about that guy? The guy's a bad guy." And the kid says, "Yeah, he's a bad guy." And he's like, "Look, he's he's a shark. You can tell he's a shark." And like, you don't know what they're watching. Maybe it's a cartoon. And uh, driver says to the kid, "There's no good sharks." <laughs> and the kid's like, "No, of course not." And either deliberately or subconsciously, the driver's talking about himself. He wants to feel like he's, you know, he's sort of a criminal, but he's still a good guy. And, you know, that that's who he wants to be. And when, he, when the kid says there's no good sharks, you know, he kind of, like, has this look on his face, the driver, like he realizes, like, 
oh shit yeah that's true um but but the subtext and not really the subtext but if you if you extrapolate the dialogue as uh, from what they're actually watching what they're watching is finding nemo <laughs> <laughs> because it's a movie. I thought so. I was thinking that. Yeah, with an actual good shark. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. So, so it kind of uh, confirms that look of, of confusion <laughs> that that uh, Ryan Gosling has on his face because he's watching a good shark, knowing it's a good shark. But the kid thinks you can't possibly be a good shark, and in his own in his own brain, he's kind of like, I want to be the good shark. I want to be yeah. the tough guy that's also the good guy. But in that hotel scene, you know, even though he just defended his own life and saved his own life, he just butchered these two guys to do it. And he knows that that's going to have ramifications and consequences that are going to have to mean that he's going to probably kill more people, yeah. right? And other people are going to get hurt and get killed, and he can't control all of it. And he's not going to be able to be that good shark the way he wanted to be. So th- those two scenes, uh, I think, are really connected um, and, and you almost don't even notice it because, again, this is like a 2011 mumblecore movie where you can't fucking hear half the dialogue. <laughs> fucking, you, ma- I can't even imagine in the theater how what a, what a difficult like just trying to like discern what the fuck they're saying like without the benefit of subtitles. You know, it's been so long since we've been in the theater. I don't even remember how good the sound quality I, I, is. I, yeah, I, I, I feel I, like exactly. You know, back back in you know, it's the, it's very the, loud movie theaters, so it's <laughs> maybe it's yeah, yeah, maybe it's a little easier, but. Shit! Uh, if you had some chewing popcorn next to you, just like shut the fuck up. Um, I missed but- a major plot point. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> no, well, so and and you know even that even ties into the one of the final scenes when when he uh, kind of drowns. Well, we presume he drowns Nino in the uh, ocean, and he calls up uh, Albert Brooks and he says to him, you know, the uh, the the scorpion didn't make it across the river, uh, referencing the the kind of parable of the scorpion and the toad. Right. Which uh, is just a really interesting theme, and that's actually kind of almost explains the ending. If you if you know the story of it, and I'm going to probably butcher it, but I'll just I'll quickly summarize, paraphrase it. Basically, uh, it's a story about uh, a scorpion. You know, asks the toad, "Hey, can you carry me on your back across this river?" And the toad says, uh, "No, you're a scorpion. You'll sting me." And the scorpion says, "Well, why would I sting you? Then we'll both drown. You know, that makes no sense." So the toad starts carrying the scorpion across the river and halfway across the scorpion stings the toad. And then the toad turns around and says, why would you do that? And and the scorpion says, well, I'm a scorpion. That's just my nature. Uh, so, you know, I, you know, he, when he's talking to Albert Brooks, he makes it seem as if he's talking about uh, Perlman's character. But, you know, you can really interpret the ending to mean that he realizes that he is the scorpion because at the end of the day, you kind of almost expect traditional Hollywood style ending that he'll be coming down that hallway at the end, um, you know, to uh, reunite with Carrie Mulligan's character, but he doesn't, he, you know, he's leaving, he's driving away because he knows that he's never, he, that he's a scorpion, that he's always going to be, you know, bringing this violence and destruction down, whether he likes it or not, because it's in his nature. So he just, he, he does the, you know, the more noble thing, which is to just, you know, let her, you know, try to find some semblance of a normal life without him. Well, and that's the real tragedy because, you know, of course, after he caves that guy's head in the elevator, he assumes that she'll never want to see him again because she steps out of the elevator and closes. And that's, you know, the yeah. end of that scene. But of course, we see her later on knocking on his door, hoping he's still there. But, you know, we know that he's never coming back, or at least not in this movie. Um, so that's that's the real tragedy. Is it's, it's this this movie has so many similarities to the movie uh, Thief, Michael Mann's first film, 1981, uh, starring James Caan. Uh, and one of the similarities is like the it, it's a you know a, a good guy uh, criminal element, and he's got mm-hmm. like a potential girlfriend slash wife who already has a young kid. Uh, and, and both films also have like a like a really uh, gooey, sugary, happy scene where they go to like a, a water feature. In this, it's like the the, the river, you know, kind of like a natural part of the river that intersects with the one of the aqueducts, right? And in the in Thief, they go to the you know just like the regular ocean with Jim Belushi. He's there for some reason. I don't know. He's in the movie. Uh, <laughs> but the, you know, the tragedy is like both in both characters in both movies sabotage their own relationship in a way that they didn't actually have to because they think it won't work. 
They think yep. it won't work, even though the woman is like still wants it to work. The guy's like, no, this is too dangerous, whatever. Um, but you know, as the viewer, you're kind of like, well, they, you know, they, they, you know, uh, driver takes out all the bad guys after him. Like there was these guys weren't there was, you know, they. I, I love the scene with Ron Perlman and Albert Brooks where they're talking about like why they're estranged from the East Coast mob. They're kind of like the the redheaded stepchild. And they get, you know, no respect from the East Coast. Like, you know, the Ronald Perlman's like 59 years old and they still pinch me on the cheek like I'm a fucking kid. <laughs> you know, and, and they, they, he talks about how there's like an element of anti-Semitism to how they're, they're, they're Jewish. So they're never going to be accepted by the, these Italian mobsters completely, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that like there's no higher mob element that's going to come after Driver for killing these guys. Right. And, and you're, you know, that, that's what makes this ending so bittersweet. And they didn't know if they were going to kill him off either. I guess they maybe shot both endings. Or they shot it two different ways and tested it. Kill so off you, driver at the end, you mean? Yeah, because they have that, that amazing long shot. And you don't know if, like, <laughs> Ryan Gosling is just really good at not moving. Like, he's that good at not emoting for Or if they just slowed it down because yeah, it's, like, insanely. Yeah, cranked it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you, it's, you know, you don't know for a long half minute if he's dead or not you know and, and and you know we've seen so many movies where someone gets sad in the stomach and they're just they're fucking fine for like another hour of fighting and blowing shit up and everything but you know we know the, we know this movie's a lot more realistic apparently um brian cranston was very specific about how uh his character would have to get cut to die that quickly right because <laughs> like he, apparently in the in the script it was just he just cut his wrist Right, mm-hmm. and Cranston on set was like, "That won't do anything. Like, you have to open the vein up the long way if you really <laughs> want to kill someone with one cut." <laughs> and they were like, "Oh yeah, that's right." Like, so Cranston was fucking like, just it, it makes Walter White even more fucking villainous to know that Brian Cranston's you know. like sitting around thinking. Now, let me about, let me oh, show you how to kill somebody quickly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking terrific. Yeah, real Cranston, real quick. Yeah. Uh, Cran- yeah, Brian Cranston's amazing in this, and he's amazing in just about everything. Uh, and his character is always, you know, just a little bit different, but it's still always Brian Cranston. You're never going to not realize it. But just a, a bit of trivia, uh, you know, he got this this role, small role, um, when he was still on Breaking Bad. They're still shooting Breaking Bad. This driver uh, drive came out in 2011, so they probably shot it in 2010, uh, and so Brian Cranston uh, got this role from working on Breaking Bad, which was uh, produced, of course, by Vince Gilligan, who was also the showrunner on uh, X-Files. He took it over uh, after being a writer on the show for a while, right? And uh, if you uh, look up on IMDb, this is on there, but uh, Brian Cranston actually got his role in Breaking Bad from having a cameo role on the X-Files, uh, is you know because they always have a cameo actor mm-hmm. in every episode, whoever's like the monster or the whoever fucking guy, and the name of the episode that Brian Cranston uh, cameoed on on the X Files was named Drive. So little <laughs> <laughs> little circle of life in the movie yeah. film industry there. So great episode by the way, it's a really good episode. Um, that I, I fucking love that show. I just total unrelated, but yeah, uh, he's he's. Oh, great. it's all related. It's all related. Yeah. Uh, have you watched any of the, the new X Files? Yeah, they're really bad. It's, it's it's unfortunate. I feel like it's just the same. Like they're they're very much the same, right? But it's just it's like it doesn't quite work when it's not the nineties. That's yeah, all it is to me. Maybe. I mean, maybe. I don't know. It, it, there's just some weird artifice to them, though. That I, There were some of that were actually not terrible from the new season, but like it, it just overall it was just like the main plot, like the main alien storyline, which has always been Chris Carter's fucking, right. uh, you know, Achilles heel, like really went off the deep end. So I don't know. But, you know, it, uh, we'll always have all the great fucking, you know, seasons one through six episodes of that show. You know, um, it, it, the weird thing to me is is that um, Mulder's character has always just seemed hammy, but now that he's older, it's like it just doesn't work. Yeah, you know, it's almost creepy or like weird. Like it just like, seems very fake and yeah. and inauthentic, right? Whereas Dana Scully still feels like a real normal, grounded character that's like actually like how people would react to real shit. Uh, so it's weird that it's like it it half the show seems good to me and like the other half doesn't. And it's just, 
I don't know. So sorry, yeah. sorry, fans of Fox Mulder, but the the older version just doesn't work for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. Dana Scully, one of the great television characters of all time. You know, obviously they based her pretty heavily, at least initially, on uh, Clarice from uh, oh, Sounds of the Lambs. Absolutely, you know, it's, it's... absolutely. And Gillian Anderson, like I don't know how she got like three times hotter as a woman in her like early fifties than she it's was crazy. in her twenties. It's fucking it's, crazy. It's, it's crazy. Just look at a picture of her now. It's like, God damn, how do you Yeah. Anyway. It, it, no, it really is incredible. <laughs> but yes. So <laughs> back to this movie. Um, the movie we're reviewed again? Yeah. Oh no, yeah, the one drive. the one with Christina Hendricks. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Back back to another so, hot redhead. Well and you know, you mentioned Thief. There's a lot of great homages to to you know the movies that kind of inspired uh nicholas winding riffin as as a director uh you know i also really got a, a strong uh long goodbye vibe from that le- the, the final scene with nino at the water like just the way it was shot and the way it kind of pulls out like it just felt a lot like that uh the suicide scene in the long goodbye you know on the beach at night in la like it just you could tell he really took a lot of the maybe not the, the just elements and motifs from from things that he's loved in the past. You know, like a lot of right. man films, Scorsese films. It, it feels like a films. movie of a movie of a movie. It you does, know? It, it, and and that's almost certainly deliberate. Um, and you notice, you know, the, the the driver has his his scorpion jacket on, but he he. Feels like okay. This is like a, a, a next level up. Like I'm going after the, you know, it, it's sort of ironic in this movie that like the the final boss isn't the final boss. Like the final boss, and this is like the second to last. Um, yeah, because yeah. we assume like Nino is kind of like a little bit higher up. I was confused partners. by their dynamic. Yeah, yeah they have a weird yeah. dynamic. Uh, but they, you know, he goes to get the, like the the stunt driver mask, right? Which of course, he's trying to hide his identity a little bit, but it's also he, I think, mentally feels like he needs another level of in- invincibility for this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to take out these guys or to take out Nino. Um, and it feels like, and I don't know if you remember the um, David Lynch film Lost Highway, but there's like a bunch of elements from that movie that all kind of take place in the 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 sequence when he's going to kill Nino, uh, you know, one is like assuming a different identity. Uh, the other is like, you know, uh, car chase in the Hollywood Hills and, um, you know, just like the, the, the flatness open desert look of the beach and the ocean, uh, is kind of replicated. There's, uh, there's I believe there is actually a, a big scene at the end of lost highway where there's like a beach house, but like the beach just kind of goes on forever. Right. Uh, so yeah, and it came out probably just you know what, what like uh, I guess about ten years after that. Um, but yeah, it has all these elements that you've seen in other movies that make you feel like he's playing out a scene in his head. And Gosling actually said that you know the, this this character kind of goes through life uh, imagining he's like uh, you know uh, all these different characters he's seen. He's, he's watched too many movies as a lot of people in Hollywood have, and they start to think that they just are in the movie. Like, they're playing out a character, and that was kind of the, the sort of the inspiration for his, his internal motivation for it. That's interesting, because actually, you know, there, there was something else I wanted to mention about, you know, you mentioned the kind of lighting shifts. There's a really interesting lighting shift in the elevator scene, where he's, uh, you know, in there with Carrie Mulligan's character, and then the, the, the jacked Joseph Gordon-Levitt guy gets on, and, yeah. you know, he's obviously there to kill him and he and he sees that he's got a gun in his jacket, yet he still turns to Carrie Mulligan and like he, he, you see him push her to the side. So you're like, oh, obviously he's pushing right. her out of the way because he's about to kill this guy. But no, he actually leans in and gives her this really long, right. like drawn out Hollywood style kiss. And the lighting actually changes to the point where I almost was like, is this actually happening? Is he imagining that? No, no I, I took that to very much be that he's. This is what he wishes could happen. Exactly. But it's yeah. not actually happening. There's no way that... Is, you is, don't turn your back on some guy with a gun for no. 15 to 20 seconds. Like, no. it's well, insane. Well, you know, and it's, it's in slow motion. But still, it's the, the, sure. the fact but, that lighting changes and suddenly it's in slow motion is very much, this is what's in his head. And this is, you know, the, the, the romanticism that he wishes his life was. Mm-hmm. This is the, the hero he wishes he was. 
right? This is the, the good shark he wishes he was. <laughs> and then it returns to the reality, which is he's the bad shark. And this is right. the brutal, awful violence. And he could kick him in the head a couple times and knock him out, and that'd be it. But he can't stop. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he, he crushes his head even more, knowing he can't stop. He loses control because he knows he is, doesn't have control. It's like a, a you know, Mobius strip circle of like, I'm, I'm mad because I can't control my rage, and my rage is because I can't control, like, you know, fr- from whence come evil, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, and that actually almost kind of gives you this other uh, look at the movie as this kind of uh, sort of proto- uh, or, or not proto neo like taxi driver type movie where his character, despite the fact that we sympathize with him all the way up until the end, you know, in some aspects, shares a lot of similarities with Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver, and so much so to the point that I think there's a couple of uh, homages to Taxi Driver in this movie where he's sitting, uh, eating. He was eating something at some point, which he's is, eating pie. Like, he's eating pie, which like in his car, which is you know, no, like it wasn't the, in his car. It was in a diner. And oh, that's was it? Okay. The, the scene yeah. when the, the, the guy that he did a job with years ago comes up to him to want to chit chat. Uh, and he's yeah. like, How about this? How about I kick your teeth down your throat and, and, and fucking. Me? And he's just like, He doesn't want to talk to the guy. That's all it is. He yeah. doesn't want any association with any of these people he's done work with. And he knows that having those associations just brings more risk into his life. Right. And that's why he tells the guy to fuck off, basically. But uh, again, it's like that, that level of. of skepticism and that that's part of why he's so isolated uh you know you see that shot of him looking out of his apartment down at uh irene and benicio and they're like maybe a good quarter of a mile away and he Mm -hmm. just kind of like glances them walking like down a sidewalk but he sees him through the trees because he's like you know a good 15 stories up uh amazing shot but it makes you just it makes him feel even more distant from them and isolated from them. Um, yep. You know, we were talking before the show that, you know, any good movie, you should be able to boil down the theme of the movie to a single word. Or if there's multiple themes of the film, you could have multiple words, but they should still be like distinct concepts that can be, uh, you know, a single word. And to me, this film, the, the, the theme of the film is isolation or alienation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Um but, you know, I it, it's just it it, it it it's interesting that you mentioned this this kind of idea of like, you know, that that he's just a guy who's basically seen too many movies and envisions himself that way because he does almost kind of take the the Travis Bickle path at the end, but you know, he I like you said he doesn't realize that Carrie Mulligan still wanted to be with him despite the fact that she sees what you know, psychological issues he fucking has that he's kind of a sociopath in some ways. Like he, it's, it's an interesting kind of almost twist on that to the point where he's so brain poisoned by all the, the pop culture he's consumed that he has to imagine himself in these roles. And he just makes things worse for himself than he needs to, you know, like it's an interesting kind of, yeah. Yeah. Twist on on that. Did you see uh, blue Valentine? I I didn't know. Oh God. Okay. So, Carrie Mulligan's character looks very similar to Michelle Williams in Blue Valentine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you almost think that, like, in this movie, a guy who has his, his shit together so well as far as, like, planning out all of the, the, the getaway driver stuff he does, you know, the, uh, you know, the map and, like, the, you know, the, the basketball game going on and, like, knowing that that's his escape route to go park there right when the game gets out to elude the, you know, like, he's really fucking smart. Yeah. And he clearly has like an emotional maturity as far as, you know, uh, dealing with bad guys, uh, as far as like, you know, trying to arrange getting rid of the money uh, and, and pulling all that off. Like he knows how to do that, outsmarting, you know, the, the Bernie with the knife at the end. But he loses his temper, which is why he's relatable. Like we can all relate to that. Right. And you think a guy like that has that much capacity for planning could be like okay i can i can go get her and we could still have a life together but he's kind of just like eh, no then you watch blue valentine which almost feels like a sequel <coughs> to this movie where it's him michelle williams actually living out the the rest of that life together and it still <laughs> doesn't fucking work <laughs> blue valentine <laughs> is the most realistic breakup movie 
and not just breakup, but like divorce movie. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't <laughs> have no interest in watching. Uh, what was that movie with Adam Driver and uh, Scarlett Johansson? Marriage Story. Yeah. I watched the trailer for that. And I'm like, this is just like a, a cheap knockoff of Blue Valentine. Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling did like the most heart, you know, the blue, the name, just the name Blue Valentine. You're like, oh, that'll be sad. No, it's fucking gut wrenching. The movie tears your heart out of your chest and shows it to you while it's still beating and then kicks it down a flight of stairs. Like, that's how uh, like bereft you are by the end of this movie. So, yeah, like, like you, you, it almost feels like, you know, he, Ryan Gosling's character driver, knows that eventually he will be poisoned in their own relationship, even without any external threat, because yeah. of that, that violent nature he has. And we, we see sort of a version of that play out in the movie uh, Blue Valentine, where, uh, you know, Michelle Williams uh, and, and Kerry Mulligan almost are stand ins for each other in each movie. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it's just it, again, it's a movie that there's not a ton of dialogue, there's not a ton of you know complex plot, but it just it just fucking it, it, it all like you said, it's all under the surface. Like it's it's just very uh, thematically rich and you know cinematically rich. Obviously, just the incredible. Uh, vibe and look of the movie incredible soundtrack too. just you know this this great just sparse 80s uh style synth music that they use throughout total new um, wave total indie pop um yeah and one of the things i noticed last night because uh, i had the subtitles on because i was trying to actually look for little details that i yeah. would have missed if i didn't have the subtitles on which you know i i, I don't often watch movies with subtitles because I'm, I'm same just trying to experience it without words on the screen but uh, you know, one of the one of the main songs is uh, uh, a a real human being. I forget the name of the band. It's called a real hero, yeah. A real hero, real human being, real hero. And and I'm reading the lyrics, and I'll just I'll just read the, some of it uh, here. Um, this, this is like the second verse. Uh, a pilot on a cold, cold morn, 155 people on board, all safe and all rescued from a slowly sinking ship. Uh, water warmer than his head, so cool, and uh, it goes on from there. And I'm like. 155 people aboard all rescued. That's the exact number of people that were on the plane that crashed in the Hudson River in 2009 in January. That's the yep. exact number of people. And I looked it up, and it was right. I was like, holy shit, this song's about that fucking crash landing of that <laughs> plane by the fucking famous now hero uh, pilot, Captain Sully Sullenberger. And I, was, I, I started getting like a little weepy thinking about it, because like, how can you not think about... 155 people surviving a plane crash, which had never happened before. There had ever been a water landing without a single fatality. Never happened in all history. And you remember at the time, it was just like we had just, you know, we just elected Barack Obama, but he hadn't been inaugurated yet. And we had this really hopeful feeling as a nation that like things were going to get better. And of course they didn't. For (laughs) (laughs) For a second, we thought they would. And that literally happened. That crash landing happened a week before his inauguration. <clears throat> and, like, the whole country was just, like, fucking all, like, hoorah America. Fucking way to go, fucking airline pilot who we don't pay enough, who has to have, like, a second job as a consultant. Uh, and it, it was like he, he had uh, taught himself how to do water landings, even though they don't teach any pilot how to actually do that because they think it's not possible to survive it anyway. Like when they tell oh. you, uh, you know, when you go fly in a plane, they're like, oh, yeah, in a water, in the event of a water, yeah, landing, it's just for your own. Die. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And he had actually figured out the exact angle that you could do it and not have the plane break apart. And he had taught himself that shit. And they were all like, like flight simulators. Right, right. That's insane. No, yeah, like they don't, they just don't train for it because it's, they're just like, you just fucking hope the plane breaks up and you somehow aren't cut in half by the fuselage <laughs> slicing through your body. Yep. So yeah, uh, uh, you know, slight tangent there, but to, to, to notice that and realize it and sort of connect that to, to this hero, um, you know, somebody who very much wants to be the hero. And we hear this song, I think at least three times in, in the movie. It's yeah. They consider it like the main theme of the film, but they yeah. plays at the end. You yeah. think you hear at the opening driving scene. And, and it wouldn't be, it would almost seem kind of kind of uh, superfluous and kind of gooey if it wasn't so obvious that he, his internal motivation is to actually be the hero. Like, mm-hmm. he's playing that role. I remember the first time I ever watched this, 
when you see him pull off the you know the heist at the very beginning before the opening credits, which are amazing, by the way. Uh, you notice actually in the opening credits, the the font is exactly the same as Thief. Michael yeah. Mann's, it's the exact same like lowercase cursive, like almost like they painted it font. Um, Very eighties, yeah. When they first after the credits show him on set, he's a fucking cop, and for a split second before you realize it's a film set, you think, "Oh shit, this guy's a cop!" Like you, they, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's almost like they trick the audience a second, or you know, well, I guess the first time they trick you, the second time is when they they show him and you think he's dead at the very end, and he's not dead, but they trick you with the role he's playing and who he really is, and who he thinks he is, and how that informs. The things he does. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, just incredible. Uh, love the vibe of it. Uh, do you have any other trivia you wanted to hit before we? Uh, no. I mean, the, a film this sparse, I, I, there's not a lot of trivia um, other than the things we've already talked about. Uh, this was a movie I'd wanted to review for a while. And I actually had, had you know, begged you to, to finally watch this. Um so I was kind of more interested. In just well, no, you know, I had seen it. Yeah, well, you I, had I, seen it before. Well, I saw it like in I think in 2011 or 22. You know, I'd either watched it. I you know I pirated it or watched it on whatever. I don't even remember. But I watched it when it came out, and I don't. And I remember being like, "Oh yeah, that was good." But like, I didn't remember a ton of it, and maybe that's because I didn't watch it with subtitles initially. So I it really was just like, it, you know, it's hard to retain a movie in your mind if you don't remember like a lot of what is said in it i, th- I sure. find for me at least so i think maybe that's part of why i was like yeah i kind of remember it um but then rewatching, i was like i i, rem- I, I started to remember it as i rewatched it and i and of course i was like oh, this movie's fucking uh tremendous and it's just you know it's, again I, like i said it's a very different uh movie than your typical fare but i think that's you know to its credit well, that it, it, uh, 10 years later too you've probably been steeped in a little bit more cinematic literacy and kind of sure know, sure you know you're more informed about what this movie is drawing upon that it that makes it so good uh i remember when it when it first came out it was like uh you know i i was already out of film school but all my friends from film school were you know all like fucking total you know uh, indie rock hipster type folks and it was like the biggest fucking deal at the time especially because the soundtrack was was so very much of that that period, 2010, 2011, where, you know, everything on, uh, you know, any college radio station had to sound like it was like a, you know, yeah, like metric throwback. and all that. Yeah. It was you like know. very synth eighties, but like, yeah, like heavy, like it, it was, it was, an, it was an interesting, it's like that, you know, it seemed kind of like almost like a throwback, but again, but when you hear that music now, you're like, that music could only have existed from 2010 to 2013. Like there's no other time that that, right. <laughs> that music existed. But I mean, you listen to any college radio station now and that's still like heavy rotation type stuff. It's just probably like yeah. bands that still kind of do that thing, which is fine. Whatever. I mean, you, you, you got to Everything is, is recycled. It's, it's, it's better else, than the, the so. 15,000 bands that tried to sound like the white stripes following, you know, the white stripes success. Who I actually like, but <laughs> oh, I just, all the, yeah. all the proto fucking, you know, all the knockoff bands. It's just like, ugh, can like, we just like, for po- the sake of politics, go back to the moment when the strokes, uh, like made everyone fight <laughs> the police on stage oh, at the Bernie so rally. Cause that oh, was like one of, the, one of the greatest moments of this year. Uh, dude that was this year that was like three months ago like that's, i know i feel like that was like 10 years ago <laughs> i really i that's that 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 makes me so depressed i can't believe that was like we were we were so hopeful and like in a good mood and like things were fine and we weren't all fucking stuck in our homes and you know literally forced... this this year like did, did you watch the um uh black mirror movie bandersnatch on netflix where it's like yeah, an interactive yeah. movie. Yeah, we're still stuck in that movie. That's the thing, is, is, is like the actual Black Mirror thing is like you you never actually stopped watching the movie. It just became this actual year that we're now living in. We're all still stuck inside the Black Mirror movie, Bandersnatch, trying to get yeah. out. <laughs> and we Fucking never will. Charlie Booker just ruining our lives, just just never going to let us out of this episode. You can you can jump off the balcony all you want. You're just going to wake up again. <laughs> that is the year in which we live, 2020. Yeah. 
God damn. All right. Well, uh, so what, what would you give this as a, as a rating out of, uh, five out of out five. five. Five, five out of five, five absolutely. This is, this is like this is one of those movies I can watch <clears throat> infinity amounts of time, and it never stops having the the resonance. And there's always little more details that I'll notice. You know, like uh, oh, I didn't even notice how Ryan Gosling like slightly twitched his eyebrow in this one scene in a way that was telling, but I didn't know that was before. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, and, and there, you know, obviously there's there's movies where he emotes a lot more. La La Land, obviously, he sings and dances, so it's not like he only wants to play this role, but he does kind of reprise this, especially with like Blade Runner 2049, uh, almost feels like a sort of a sequel of this character, where he's just like, I don't, I don't have any emotions, I don't know if I'm human or not, like, I don't know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm a real human being, are my memories real, you know, yeah. Um uh, but but still, the the fact that he was I don't even how old was he? he I think he's like uh, a year younger than me, like one year, right? So he would have been almost my same age when he did this. To to have that big of a role in shaping the film, um, yeah. And I, I, I'm sure you've seen other films by this director uh, that are not nearly as cohesive. Or don't I haven't help. actually seen. Uh, what, what else did he direct? He, I, I, I've been mean to watch uh, the Neon Demon because I've heard good things about that. Yeah. But. So they did. Uh, Ryan Gosling also stars in Only God Forgives, which is oh, yeah, that got horribly panned when that came out. I remember. It, it's it's way more of an experimental film. Yeah. And it, it's almost like if you could imagine a movie that's like halfway between Drive and Blade Runner, it's. You could you could come up with uh, only God forgives. <laughs> uh, it's it is kind of an incoherent mess, but it's sort of just like cinematic poetry, mm. where it, it doesn't need to make sense. Like you, there, you'd be hard pressed to come up with like a singular theme for the film. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it really is kind of like you know, it takes place uh, in Tokyo, I believe. And there's sort of like a criminal underworld element to it that coincides with like a very like old traditional samurai code that there's like certain things you just don't ever do. And if you do, you're going to get your hands chopped off. Right. Uh, and, and it sort of plays around with that idea. And Ryan Gosling's just like this white guy who is sort of tough, but not really, uh, and gets beat up a lot. <laughs> and that's kind of the crux of the film. Right. Um, yep. But the, the, you know, the cinematography and the music and everything just kind of, it's like, what, what if they, you know, uh, took the cinematic poetry of Drive uh, and took out the car and Ryan Gosling was like a total fuck up instead of a hero. <laughs> That's kind of the film. But I'm, I'm glad they did it. I'm glad they just kind of like, well, let's let's keep experimenting. Let's let's do something very different uh, and keep collaborating, because I think that's where you, uh, you know, you, you don't find movies like that very often. Yep. That are, are 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 given the space or have the creative uh, elements to try something different, and it's okay if they fail. It's okay if it doesn't work because at least they did something other than Fast and Furious nineteen or yeah. whatever the next fucking carbon copy is. <clears throat> yeah, he actually also wrote um, Only God Forgives, which he didn't write uh, Drive. So maybe that was, but you know, maybe he's well, just a better director than a writer. Maybe that's sure what, you know. or, or editor. Just, you know, like yeah. in sculpture, you've got the additive method and the subtractive method. And, you know, some people are just better script doctors where they're like, well, I don't know how to write a movie, but I can tell you what to cut out of it. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the reasons Empire Strikes Back is so great is because Carrie Fisher, like, went in and, and changed all the fucking dialogue to make it actually funny. That's why, like, Empire Strikes Back yeah, is so much. Like incredibly the, funny. Yeah. yeah, just yeah. And, she, and she did script doctoring her whole life. She did like mm-hmm. rewriting and, and punch up her whole life, which um, is one of those things that didn't really come into the public. Co- like people knew about it, obviously, but like it wasn't a publicly known kind of thing until after she died. Everyone was like, "Oh yeah, no, she script doctored like all these incredibly famous right. and successful movies," and it's like, "Oh shit!" Like it, it, because it's mostly uncredited because they yeah. don't want people to know that the person who wrote it's not that good. They want to have like a personality who wrote the thing and want you to know that like they had a team of twenty writers all meet one day and go, well, "What about you know like like Pat Oswalt's amazing script doctor and, and has like a whole team of people that he'll do that with." Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's sometimes you get you get one great script. Sometimes you got a, a you know a, a script that gets passed around for ten fifteen years before somebody finally 
makes it what it needs to be to actually get fucking uh, filmed. Well, and and the thing with scripts is like it, people think of like, oh yeah, obviously the movie must be there. It, reading it, like writing a good script is hard, but also like finding a good movie in a script is really just a test of a director's imagination because it really is just a blueprint. It's very bare bones. Like there's no, you know, you don't have, you have no internal um, dialogue or no internal, th- you know, it, it's just very much, you have to find it on paper and then bring it out. And that's like, you know, there are great scripts that can be turned into terrible movies. If the director doesn't get it or if the actor doesn't get it sure. or, you know, it's just well, and a screenwriter can sit around working on a script for years, but the people that actually are going to produce it and direct it and star in it are constantly working on other shit. Yeah, right. So, so it, it, literally, it's a miracle that any movie gets finished and is finish. good. Yeah, and, and is good, right? Because you there's right now there's tens of thousands of finished Hollywood scripts sitting on a desk somewhere that have been read and are not being financed or made. And not yeah. just because of the coronavirus right now. I mean, like, just in normal. It just, <laughs> right? yeah, it, for the bit since the beginning of Hollywood. And great fucking movies have, you know, languished in developmental hell or just sitting on a desk somewhere, right. I'm sure. Scorsese, you know, for... when he made Silence, which is, I think, his best film ever, uh, which almost nobody has seen, uh, just came out a couple years ago. He had that in development for 25 years. Wow. Right? And there's no CGI or special effects in the movie. It was just... When do I get around to making that one? (laughs) You know, and I'm glad he waited because it's it's one of it's like a just you know the movie's called Silence, but it's a very quiet film. It's just this incredible uh, quiet masterpiece about these um, Portuguese monks or or Spanish monks. I I forget what country they're actually from, who are on like a rescue mission to find uh, Qui Gon Jinn from. (laughs) <laughs> the, the Star Wars um, yeah, Liam, Neeson. Liam Neeson yeah, he, he looks exactly like the same facial hair in this movie they're trying to find him and he's like like a missing in feudal Japan in the 1600s at a time when they were like expelling all of like all foreigners and trying to kind of like really isolate themselves and it's a, it's sort of like a almost a uh, has a very similar tone as like Last Temptation of Christ in mm-hmm. that it's very much like about you know the the questioning your own faith and everything, but whether you're religious or not, it's it's still like you you understand when you watch the movie Just why the people it, were yeah. so committed to to holding on to their respective religion uh, and and how they're like like butting heads against each other. Like, well, why do you believe in this? It's like because that's the way it is, and like, but that's not the way it is. And it's like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna be like Jewish rabbis arguing the the fine nuance for the rest of time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what was? Oh, yeah. So, I'll, I and I agree. I'll give. I'll give it five. Uh, five out of five. Hammer and sickles. Uh, you know. <laughs> again. And again, our, our our rankings are not. You know, they, they shouldn't be stacked against one another. It's just you know. I, well, the way I base it is just like, could I have? Would I have said? Oh, I wish they did this differently. And I can't think of anything in this movie. No. That I would have. You know. It's it's a perfect film. It's it's like, this is you know when we say neo noir. Uh, you know, it is a perfect neo-noir film, taking all the the elements of, of crime, uh, you know, who, the, the, the man trying to be the better man that is, you know, at the core of a lot of noir films from the 40s and 50s, um, and, you know, usually failing in that endeavor or, or, or missing the mark they're going for. Uh, you know, I, I would say there's there's not a lot of perfect films. Um, obviously, the last film we did, Terminator 2, again, uh, perfect action film. Maybe the best sequel best action of all movie. times. Best, yeah. Uh, we gave that a five out of five as well. Uh, one of these days, we got to... Do we, did we ever... I don't, we've done so many of these fucking reviews. I don't even remember what we've reviewed. I, I know. I forget half the shit that we've reviewed. Yeah, especially because we always talk about like 10 other movies while we're talking about one film, which I think is okay. I think it, like you, you have to cite examples in other films of, of similarities and everything. But yeah. one of these days, we've got to do uh, Back to the Future. Just, just because. Did we not do... We didn't we do Back to the Future? No, I don't think we did. We've, we we just talked about it like extensively when we start when we watched it after yeah. it, it yeah. went on Netflix. Well, it's, it's back. A, it, yeah, it's on Netflix, and I watched the whole trilogy uh, again. We should and, just do the whole trilogy. I mean, uh, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> probably yeah. do an hour and a half on that. Um, yeah, no, absolutely, we will. We'll do that. Um, 
But yeah, that's, so it, I think like, you know, we talked about why Terminator 2 holds up so well, why Back to the Future holds up so well. Movies that feel like they, you know, can never be remade because they don't feel like they came from a certain time period. They feel like they're eternally classic. I think this movie is going to have that same that same thing where 30 years from now, people are going to go back and talk about this movie and be like, damn, this is like, no one's going to talk about Fast and Furious 4 in 25 years, but they're still going to talk about Terminator 2 and they're still going to talk about Drive and they're still going to talk about Thief and they're still going to talk about Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> because these were movies that people put so much more thought into, even though they didn't have a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, I think with that, um, we're pretty much uh, good to go. We'll probably be back in another couple of weeks with another review. Um, you know, keep an eye out on this feed if uh, anything else pops up. And yeah. So if you want to uh, help the show out, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, that helps us move up in the algorithm. Uh, follow us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash move left. Uh, Facebook.com slash move left idiots is our uh, Facebook page. We uh, have a Patreon at patreon.com slash move left. We have merch available at tinyurl.com slash move left merch. I am on Twitter at move underscore left. And as always, I'm on Twitter at bike slutty. Yep. See you next time.